into a darkened room. It's almost Halloween. Let's stay up late, eat pumpkin cake. There's movies to be seen. Hold close your soul, or let it go. Beware the magic spell. Stories told, new and old, of creatures good and fell. All the world is a tapestry, each of us lives within the weave. A tapestry is but a million strings, look close and you will perceive. Hello everybody, welcome to a very, very special episode of Strangely and Friends the Podcast. It's the Halloween episode! It's Halloween this week, and I am very excited to present a sort of a spooky episode, I guess. This is my first holiday episode. This is also the 20th episode of this podcast. I'm really proud of that, and I hope you all think that's cool, because you're still here listening to it, I guess. Uh, what happened this week? Oh, there's a there's a trailer for the new Star Wars. Uh, Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. I saw the trailer. I wore a Star Wars shirt while I watched it, and I really liked the trailer. Yay! Also, there's a Watchmen show on HBO. It's pretty freaking great. Uh, I love it. Uh, the first episode, anyway. I loved the pilot. It totally surprised me, which I don't. I don't remember the last time an adaptation of an existing source material that I'm very familiar with surprised me quite this much. So that was super cool to experience. Uh, anyway, I've commented now on something in the current zeitgeist, so let us speak of it no more. George Gray. I have studied many times the marble which was chiseled for me. A boat with a furled sail at rest in a harbor. In truth, it pictures not my destination, but my life. For love was offered me, and I shrank from its disillusionment. Sorrow knocked at my door, but I was afraid. Ambition called to me, but I dreaded the chances. Yet, all the while, I hungered for meaning in my life. And now I know that we must lift the sail and catch the winds of destiny wherever they drive the boat. To put meaning in one's life may end in madness, but life without meaning is the torture of restlessness and vague desire. It is a boat longing for the sea, and yet afraid. Strangely recommends in 200 words or less, including these 11. Who? Who imposed this rule? Wait, is this a side count? I... Fiddlesticks! Spoon River Anthology by Edgar Lee Masters Like a Lake Wobegon by way of David Lynch, this delightful fantasia of interconnected poems creates an entire town from the printed word. Written as though all the ghosts in the graveyard of Spoon River have risen to tell you of their grievances, hopes, fears, and petty jealousies, these poems, each less than a page, have a sticking quality that's hard to define. 
Instead of trying to describe the poems, I'll be reading selections of them throughout this episode. When Spoon River was first published over 100 years ago, it caused a bit of a kerfuffle. With its dark, seedy underbelly of lust and portrayal percolating through a quiet Midwestern town. Even today, the bucolic myth of the moral superiority of small-town life holds much sway in many parts of the developed world, but masters saw through that. No matter where we live, we're still humans. And where there are humans, there are ghosts. Flossie Cabanis From Bindle's Opera House in the village to Broadway is a great step, but I tried to take it my ambition fired when 16 years of age seeing East Lynn playing here in the village by Ralph Barrett, the coming romantic actor who enthralled my soul. True, I trailed back home a broken failure when Ralph disappeared in New York City, leaving me alone in that city. But life broke him also. In all this place of silence, there are no kindred spirits. How I wish Deuce could stand amid the pathos of these quiet fields and read these words. I recorded a chat with one of my favorite artists that I discovered this year named Issy Schmeier. I think it's Schmeier? Schmeier? Oh man, I know I'm saying it wrong. You know, if you listen to this podcast, I am horrible at pronouncing German names. It makes German people laugh. It's a curse. Or maybe it's a blessing. It it makes it disarms them. <laughs> uh, but this is I I Issy is one of my favorite artists that I discovered this year. Issy does this incredible show called Horror. Very appropriate for a Halloween episode, hey. And it's just this show where Issy just recites poetry and tells stories and plays a little bit of music. So I thought before you hear my chat with Issy, I'll play a little bit of what Issy does. <laughs> Rememberst thou, my sweet, that summer's day, how when the sun outspread, at a path's bend a filthy carcass lay upon a pebbly bed? Like a lewd woman with its legs in the air, burned and oozed the poisonous mass, its gaping belly, calm and debonair, was full of noisome gas. And steadily upon this rottenness, as if to cook it brown, and render nature hundredfold excess, the sun shone down. The blue sky thought the carrion marvellous, a flower most fair to see. And as we gazed, it almost poisoned us. It stank so horribly. Lies buzzed on its putrid belly, whence black hosts of maggots came, which streamed in thick and flowing rivers thence, along that ragged frame, pulsating like a wave, spurting about bright jets that seemed to live, as if by some vague wind blown out, some breath procreative. And all this life was strangely musical, wind or bubbling spring, or corn, which moves in rhythmic rise and fall, in times of winnowing. 
This is my chat with Issy Schmier. Oh man, I'm so offending you. I'm so sorry, Issy. You're amazing. Your show is so cool. Just going down into the basement of the Banshee Labyrinth in that dark little cave room and getting to hear all of the incredible bits of literature that you presented was amazing. So please don't be mad at me. And I hope all of you folks listening at home enjoy my chat with Issy. So you just finished your run. How do you feel? Uh, relieved, tired, kind of sad that it's over. Happy to come back next year, but mm -hmm. also very much looking forward to just having some time off now. Um, but it's been a really good run. It's just been a lot of fun. And is this your first year? No, so this is my third year performing and mm -hmm. fourth year being at the Fringe. So. Is your third year doing this solo? Yeah recitation show yeah is that what would you call it i guess you could describe the show uh i guess like spoken word theater mm -hmm. yeah because it's spoken word in that it's sort of directed at the audience so mm -hmm. it's you know theater sometimes at the fourth wall yeah it's some yeah somewhere in between these and two genres I, I'm just full disclosure for my listeners, I guess. Yours was one of my two favorite shows this entire fringe, and actually one of my favorite shows I've seen all year. Uh, even though it is, like like you said, it's just kind of a spoken word, very simple thing on the surface. Um, just going and hearing someone do a lot of uh, recitations and poetry and, and um, prose on a theme was really lovely, and, and you, you delivered it so well. Mm -hmm. So why... <laughs> welcome. <laughs> yeah. uh, I guess to kind of get the ball rolling, I, I want to ask about why you're into horror specifically, mm -hmm. and not just horror, but like, I guess classic horror, mm -hmm. we kind of refer to it now. Yeah. I mean, to me, it started off as mostly just kind of a very business-minded idea, because I, mm -hmm. uh, so I came here four years ago uh, to the Fringe, and um, came back the next year with a friend I was doing tech for her I was like well I'll be at the fringe might as well also try and do my own show mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to do a spoken word show because that's what I do in Germany as well um, and I kind of I was thinking about what can I do so I looked at the program it was like it's all comedy yep. so much comedy going on what can I do that isn't comedy um, so I kind of looked at comedy turned 180 degrees. And one of the things that came up was, was horror. Because, um, yeah, it, does have that, it doesn't have to compete with comedy right. for me, uh, the way I see it. And then also another big factor was uh, whose work can I use without having the performance rights? Because, right, right, right. you know, the author has to be dead a certain amount of time, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. So... Yeah, basically also... I mean, it's something that can be sorted out, getting performance rights right, and stuff. Right. But I, for my first show, I was like, right, I want to do something where I don't have to make sure that I've got all the rights to perform and stuff. So I just looked at people that have been dead for a long time, <laughs> which probably also inspired the horror thing. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, well, it, it lended a very, like, old-timey... I mean, I, I, what I do is also very old-timey, even though I, I kind of call it cabaret. It's essentially me just telling stories and singing songs. And... It, for me, it harkens back to kind of this, I, I don't know, I mean, the, the past is nostalgia and rose-tinted glasses and all that, but the, I kind of uh, have this vague idea that uh, there used to be a time before television, radios, all, you know, internet, where everybody would just kind of sit around the table after dinner, and then someone would be like, oh, tell that joke 
that you tell or, or oh remember that poem you you recited last Christmas like could you recite that you know and we, everybody sort of took turns entertaining each other and the shows that I tend to really enjoy have that flavor so you in your show you know it's it's poetry but it's also a bit of comedy you did a you did a funny poem and, and you did Jabberwocky yeah, yeah. with with your own lighting yeah, like yeah. pointing a flashlight at your face and I just I was so enthralled by that but it, it still had a colloquial feel because in between the poems and things you would you would give little introductions and and there'd be little jokes about who knows if 17th century German humor will translate to modern Scotland uh, so what with the selections were you I mean you already said dead authors kind of on a horror theme um, but obviously like you 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 did the selections you do you mm-hmm. have a, you don't yeah. have a director for this no 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 yeah um, yeah so I did a I just tried to read sort of the horror classics you mm-hmm. know like Bram Stoker and uh, Mary Shelley and um, a lot of Edgar Allan Poe and that sort of thing but then I also tried to just find different stuff as well that you wouldn't find in the sort of classic lit- horror literature section, but, you know, like the Octrake, the, the text about the old castle, it's an mm-hmm. old deserted castle that's really eerie, but there's no actual story there. It's just sort of a very eerie atmosphere that he creates. Um, and he's not a horror writer, mm-hmm. but it sort of fit the theme of, you know, one of the things about horror is that you're usually most afraid of the things that you don't see and the things that aren't sort of spelled out for you it's when you let your own imagination run wild that's where the really scary things come up I think Um, and so I think that text does that it it leaves a lot of room for your own imagination to come up with a story of what happened at the castle and you know why it is the way it is and what could happen next and who the narrator is and that sort of thing um, so yeah, basically, uh, yeah, I just read a whole lot of different texts and then tried to have a bit of a mix of different narrative sc- styles. Like I didn't want to just do stories and I didn't want to just do poems, mm-hmm. but sort of have a bit of a mix of the different genres. Yeah, the, the journal selection that you recited from Bram Stoker's Dracula mm-hmm. with, um, um, I can't remember the psychologist's uh, name. Uh, Dr. Seward. Yeah, writing about... <laughs> um, uh, uh, Oh no, Renfield. Renfield, yeah. And it's him collecting the spiders, and then collecting the sparrows, and then he mm-hmm. wants a cat, and then he eats the bird. You know, that yeah. eats the birds. I that was so great, and it it made me want to read that novel again because like there are parts of that novel where the things she does are just a hundred years ahead of her time. Like yeah. it's the the, the the I feel like the sort of um, found document. Uh, like created narrative mm-hmm. thing is really popular these days yeah. because everything's online and the only things that aren't are older smaller things and yeah. so a lot of like authors and stuff are creating these kind of like like fictional histories around an, an object or an uh, mm-hmm. a story just because like the, f- the desire for something that's not digital is so strong yeah which is, a, I think, part of that feeling that I love seeing recreated in a show like yours is that uh, that feeling of just kind of like almost like an oral tradition and then like yeah, a history. Definitely. I mean, lots of horror stories as well start being just being told. Like, mm-hmm. I think everyone did that as children, didn't we? Just talking. 
like telling each other horror mm-hmm. stories and like sleepovers and stuff. Um, and also, Christmas used to be a time for horror, which I think is really funny because they used to Christmas used to be a time of telling horror stories, like ghost stories, and so on. Um, which I find really interesting. So you, know, you can see that in, in Charles Dickens. Mm-hmm. Um, did you? Did you? Where Where did you grow up? Uh, in Germany, a uh, mm-hmm. little village near in the north of Bavaria. No, d- oh, did you have the the Krampus, or is that not? We had, uh, yeah, we had the um, uh, Knecht Huprecht is his name in, uh, <laughs> in the part of Germany yeah. I'm from. Yeah, so it's basically you have uh, Nikolaus, which is the mm-hmm. good Santa Claus, and then he comes along with Knecht Huprecht, who is like his little helper that uh-huh. will beat you up. Oh, so you so you grew up with almost like the the Dutch. Yeah, similar. I was um, my my parents are immigrants from Holland Mm -hmm. to the United States, but the the community that they settled in is still very much like keeping the you know it's one of those like expat communities that keeps the tradition. So like we had uh, Sinterklaas and Svarte Piet Mm -hmm. come through and you know pretend to kick you and like put you in a bag, take you to Spain. Sinterklaas mm-hmm. is for the for Holland. Sinterklaas is from he lives in Spain. Yeah. Um, where does he come from? The village you grew up in. And Nicholas Nicholas is from Turkey. From Turkey. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's that. Um, yeah, the Dutch one used to. He lives in Spain, and he's the he's a bishop from Turkey. Is it? Yeah. It's like, yeah. <laughs> so bizarre. Like the the, especially with holiday myths, I feel like they kind of like. They keep adding things over time, mm-hmm. and then it just yeah. becomes like really big and like all these extra bits. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so, what what is the name of the village again? Uh, it's called Vanek, like this little village of two thousand people. Um, in the yeah, Franconia, which is like the north of Bavaria. So we've got Nuremberg around mm-hmm. there, Bamberg, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of beer and wine as well. So. <laughs> The wine part of Germany. Yeah, there's a good few in the south of Germany. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you said you were at the Fringe before with not this show. Yeah. So what what were you here doing? Uh, so I was doing. Uh, I worked as a lighting technician for my friend, um, mm-hmm. who's from. She's from Norway originally, um, but she lives in the UK, and she wrote uh, or she writes Ibsen translations and adaptations. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because. Uh, she says, if you look at Ibsen, uh, in if you look at translations, they either focus on on the language, and you know, and make them uh, like in the the artfulness mm-hmm. of the language, and they make them very sort of close to the original and very intricate and everything. But then you can't put it on stage because right. it just gets too difficult to perform. And then on the other side, we have translations that are written for the stage but then a lot of the sort of subtle humor and stuff gets lost so what she's trying to do is sort of find a sort of halfway like have the both the best of those two worlds and put that on stage yeah Um, that i'm gonna have to like get her details from you because i would love to see that mm -hmm. because i've tried to read ibsen a few times and like it's the you know the translations i had were probably the first kind of the really flowery because um, like whenever I speak to my Scandinavian friends, they're like, "Oh my God, Ibsen, this thing, mm-hmm. the, all these things," and then like I'll like see something of it and just kind of like, "Yeah, what was yeah, he I'm, I'm missing something here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Apparently, um, she says there's also a lot of 
you know, the mythology of Norway and stuff, and little, little sort of habitual things that cultural things that also need translation, right? Um, rather than just the words, you also need to translate some of the, you know, the social constructs around that that sort of need to be translated. Uh, so she's been trying. Her name's uh, Invi Brenner. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look for Fox and Orchid Theatre Company, um, the animal and the flower. Uh, That's so cool. Yes, you should find. You should be able to find her. Um, so yeah, and she's also trying to, or she translates the text and then puts them into a modern setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's one text, uh, one play called Borkman, uh, which is is that the name? I don't know if that's the original name, uh, but it's about a banker who gambled a lot of money um, and then uh, he fooled a lot of people into giving him his, their money and then that sort of thing. And she kind of put it into the more 2009 setting mm-hmm. of, yeah, and kind of put it into that context. Uh, so that sort of thing. So, yeah, uh, super interesting stuff. Yeah, I find it fascinating how often some of these old shows and things, like, or, you know, it's a, Shakespeare's a great example of people doing that, but, but a lot of other older works, too, can be very easily transposed into the modern era because humanity hasn't changed at yeah. all. We have new tools and, and new methods of communication and transportation and everything, but we, we're still doing the same shit. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Just on a different scale. Yeah, or different contexts and modern, stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> This thing that you do, I, I have to admit, I'm really envious of you with your uh, spoken word show because you you have no, no prop, like you don't need yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. You know, I carry this big, heavy accordion all over the world, and I, I mean, there are people who are envious of me. Mm-hmm. I have friends who have these big shows, like three suitcases on the plane, and you know all this stuff, and yeah, and they're they're wearing their giant tardigrade costume on the plane. It says. Um, and and yet uh, you have such a portable show. And oh, yeah. you, you did say that the show was kind of slightly business-minded when you were putting it together. Yeah, was that also part of the thinking? It's just like no props, no yeah, sets. Yeah, absolutely. That was the idea. Like, what can I do to make it as sort of... I just need myself and a room. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to work that way without lighting cues, without music. Because I also... Um, so I perform at the Free Fringe, BBH's mm-hmm. Free Fringe. And um, the setup there is that we don't have to pay for the venue. Um, but then if you want work done most of the time, you'll just have to do it yourself. Right. Uh, so it's all sort of very, it's a bit of a <laughs> little hippie community uh-huh. of people just working to make venues look nicer and stuff. It's great. Uh, so, but then because I applied to do the show there, I knew that I wasn't going to have a massive, you know, kind of tech stuff arsenal of different like you know lights and whatnot available but I knew that was just going to be a room mm-hmm. with hopefully a stage and a microphone and a PA system um, so yeah it was written with that in mind and but it's cool because now I know it sort of works on its own and then I can build up from that and I did the show in Germany in June and I had a lighting technician and I had a friend of mine who's a classical uh, guitarist he played music and then it just took it all to the next level. Oh, yeah. It was like, oh, that's really cool. But then I can still sort of shrink it down again mm-hmm. and take it to the fringe, and I'm still happy with the show, um, even without all the sort of gimmicks. Yeah, that that flexibility is why I am a solo performer. Like, just me and just the accordion 
is a show. And if I have the the bag of Lego and the extra pair of pants, like it's a better show. Um, but but being able to make do without certain props or certain things and to not have to have that pile of stuff because then when you do have the pile of stuff or the the company mist or whatever, it becomes something even better. Exactly. But you know that the work yeah. stands on its own, yeah. which is which is delightful. And, and in your case, it absolutely does. Um, I I I. The fact that you were performing in that room that had no door at the back mm-hmm. and just all the noise of Banshee's Labyrinth, uh, that uh, underground club, was just pouring in the whole time of, like, everybody, like, bah, all right, bah, like, down the hall with their pints and everything, and still you just had that entire room captivated. And I, I heard from a mutual friend of ours that you weren't even feeling well. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, like, the fact that you yeah. managed to just smash that show is, like... <laughs> so impressive yeah it's it's a good training ground really because I performed there last year as well mm-hmm. and last year the noises would throw me off a lot more I'd have to work a lot harder to I remember my I think this last or second to last show I did and there was so much noise bleed and there were people sitting in the corridor just outside outside the room um, so it was a whole lot of noise bleed and I kept walking outside and telling people to yeah, Mind keeping it down a little, blah blah blah, and then going back in, continuing the show, then going out again. Maybe you could sit over there. Um, and someone came up to me afterwards and said, "You know what? I, I wouldn't have minded. Like I was so focused on you and listening to you that I sort of I didn't even notice the noise as much. Um, and that gave me the confidence this year to be like, right, I." I can do this. Like I know there's going to be noise, and I try to keep things as quiet out there as possible, and I try to block out as much of the noise as I can. Mm-hmm. But I also know that the audience will want to listen to me, and that's sort of nice, nice thing as well. And I get that too with uh, the spoken word audience. I think it's really nice because if you go to a spoken word show, you go there and you're sort of prepared to listen. Right. So I get the audience is always super attentive and mm-hmm. like keen on listening. You know? I really like that, as opposed to comedy, where people are sort of more like, "Oh, entertain me." Yeah. You know. I know. How's how's that been for you, uh, for your show with audience sort of being focused, or do they want to be entertained more, or do you, what's the feel? I mean, for for my show, I've been doing my show for six or seven years now. Yeah. And I have enough of a sort of branding and following and everything. Not that I'm, like, really well-known, but, like, enough people here know about what they're getting in for when they come to my show that they're ready. And also, like, it, it's very much promoted as, like, drinking songs, party songs, sing-along. Like, this is this is going to be wild and crazy. This is not your grandfather's accordion. Although sometimes I still... To this day, the show is called Accordion Fight Show. It's advertised as containing nudity. Like, you know, it's like, it doesn't have any nudity, but it's like advertised as like, this is wild. He gets naked. He, he fights you, you know, all this stuff. And I'll, every year, I'll get like a, an older couple who come in and they're like, we'll have to see some accordion music, uh, like in a French cafe. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. what? What about anything that I've done up to this point? inclines you to believe that this is going to be gentle and, and easy listening because yeah. it's not 
But at the same time, like it's fringe. You, you constantly are getting people through the door who who aren't quite ready or don't understand. Um, I mean, for me, it was odd seeing a show like yours at two o'clock in the afternoon, because you know your show was very dark and like and like horror and sort of like it's it's. I mean, to be honest, is the kind of show that I want to have start at the stroke of midnight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, sort of a midnight hour kind of a like thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, where you're like you take people into this like this this dark corner and just like but at the fringe where everybody's drinking and partying you probably get a lot of people falling asleep too well I did the first year I did the show I wasn't in the Banshee Labyrinth Mm -hmm. I was at a venue called Black Market which is right next to Mm -hmm. the Edinburgh Dungeon or it used to be there it's just a construction site now Um, which I thought was perfect as well and then my show started at half past ten I think Mm -hmm at night uh, so I was like oh that's going to be good um, and then the next year I got into the Bantry Labyrinth which is fantastic because it's a brilliant venue uh, but then they scheduled me in for 2 o'clock and I was like oh can I can I do 2 o'clock is that not going to be too early because um, the 10pm show sort of had this thing of you walked out and it was really spooky like the idea was that people would walk out and be like don't want to walk down that dark alleyway sort of yeah. thing. Uh, so then when I was put on 2 o'clock, I was like, that's not going to work because people are going to walk out at 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. and just be out in the street in the sunlight. So people are not, they're not going to carry the sort of scariness out. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I saw, sort of saw it as an opportunity to focus more on the literature because mm-hmm. people will be more awake at 2 p.m. than at 10 right. p.m. Um, so I just changed the, th- the show um, and kind of made it more about the literature than necessarily the horror, in a way. It reminded me, being in that room, uh, reminded me of the last time I played Iceland Airwaves, because that's in Reykjavik in November. So it's freezing cold, and you're running around with, uh, like, six coats on, and then you get to a venue, like, a you know, because that music festival is a lot like Fringe like there's the six or seven big venues that everybody knows but then every cafe bar pub bookshop you know there there's a lingerie store that had music happen you know, it's just like everywhere <laughs> all over the city and you'll pop into a like a little shop or something and there'll be you know 50 people crammed into a room the size of your venue and it's just hot and close and and it's dark outside because the sun goes down at you know two o'clock and 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 it sort of felt like that. Like, all of a sudden mm-hmm. I was in a place like that where just, like, anything could happen. Because the dungeon, it's like, that's an actual dungeon almost. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. Not the dungeon, um, Banshee Labyrinth. Yeah. But it's like a dungeon. It's like that big vaulted stone ceiling. It's like, it's a very good space for Absolutely. that show. Yeah. What What is the, what is the, you, you talked about having a guitarist with you and mm-hmm. all, all that. Like, what is the dream for a show like this? for you like to just keep telling people stories like do you, do you switch out the stories every year um yeah I try to change it uh, every year because there's always like I do the show and then I'm like yeah but it's still missing something so I'm trying to sort of get it get it right and I think that means yet yeah, switching out some of the texts like there are some that I've been doing for two years now mm-hmm. um the the castle one and then Bram Stoker um I think those are the sort of veteran texts. Right. Um, yeah, so the dream, yeah, for me at the moment, the dream is to sort of uh, 
I still work on the structure of the show. Like I know when, when I read my reviews, they always kind of say oh, the performance is great and the texts are interesting, but I still need that extra bit. I think also for myself of uh, some sort of dramaturgy, narrative structure to make it even. Yeah, to kind of have the audience just sit there for you know fifty five minutes and then walk out and be like, what what did just happen? in a way, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm still, that's going to be what I'll be working on until next year is trying to get that. The mixture, the, right? The, yeah, and sort of finding that one little element that's still missing. <laughs> that one little element that's yeah. still missing. I like that. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat yeah, on the no. podcast. Uh, as we're sort of wrapping this up, uh, I always ask my guests for recommendations of art or artists, not necessarily specifically here at Fringe, but just in general in life, because, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of... In life, people kind of have a certain idea of how things should be done. Uh, like, something I've been talking about with a lot of friends this month is that there aren't very many female magicians. Mm-hmm. And there should be, because yeah. every female magician I've ever seen has been amazing. So let's get more of those. And in a, in a lot of artistic categories, so... Um, I, I always ask my guests for recommendations that kind of will push beyond the expected or the standard. So if you have any recommendations for my listeners. Um, oh, let me think. Um, uh, did you go and see Ava Bo, who's a female magician? Yes, I, I loved her so much. And she had some, yeah. some Edgar Allan Poe yeah, yeah. in her show as well. She's lovely. She's going to be a guest on the podcast uh, this week as well. Ah, brilliant. <laughs> Good. Yeah. <laughs> Plugging her for the podcast uh, edition. Um, Last year I saw um, an actor that really sort of, that made me go like, ooh, that is super interesting. He's um, from Singapore originally, and he's uh, deaf-mute, and he does sort of physical theatre, but I talked to him, or I did a workshop at at, uh, French Central Mm -hmm. last year, and uh, he's a actor and storyteller but he tells all his stories without the spoken word mm-hmm. which I thought was super interesting because all I do is tell stories with words and right. he does it without the words um, and he's so sort of for every show he does he um, he finds a way like a new way of telling stories so he does like puppetry for one show and then for the next show he'll just do miming and then he'll do some clown work for the next show, and then he'll try and mix all these things for the next show and that. So he's just sort of constantly building up this repertoire of visual styles to tell stories, and I think that's really cool. Uh, his name is Ramesh Mayapan, and I think he teaches in Glasgow now. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, his work is pretty inspiring, I think, especially if you like physical theatre and clowning and puppetry and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Super interesting work. I think that's a good one to recommend anyway. All right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for taking some time to be on my podcast. And uh, please come back anytime because uh, I would love to talk with you more about yeah, horror and and making fringe shows and everything like that. Uh, and you've already said you'll be back at Fringe next year. I will as well. So, uh, Brilliant. Yeah, we'll catch your show up will be way earlier on my docket <laughs> of things to see because I just I was transported. So thank you so thank much. Thank you so much.
So that was my chat with Issy. If you'd like to know more about Issy or find out where you could catch uh, her show, you can follow her on Twitter at HorrorDFN. HorrorDFN. So there you go. Father Malloy. You are over there, Father Malloy, where holy ground is and the cross marks every grave. Not here with us, on the hill. Us of wavering faith and clouded vision, and drifting hope and unforgiven sins. You were so human, Father Malloy, taking a friendly glass sometimes with us, siding with us who would rescue Spoon River from the coldness and dreariness of village morality. You were like a traveler who brings a little box of sand from the wastes about the pyramids and makes them real, and Egypt real. You were a part of and related to a great past, and yet you were so close to many of us. You believed in the joy of life. You did not seem to be ashamed of the flesh. You faced life as it is and as it changes. Some of us almost came to you, Father Malloy, seeing how your church had divined the heart and provided for it. Through Peter the Flame, Peter the Rock. Here's a thought. I recently reread a collection of H.P. Lovecraft stories. Wow, just saying that touched off a ripple of mumbling about latent racism and uncomfortable content in books. I'm not here to deny any of Lovecraft's more problematic writing, though I must admit that in returning to my beloved Miskatonic region, I was expecting worse. No, really, I went in braced for comical levels of uncomfortable racism, and what I got was... Well, it was pretty par for the course. It's nothing worse than many of his contemporaries were putting out at the time. That's not an excuse, just a contextualization. I think many of us reserve a particular shock toward Lovecraft because of the way in which his work was first presented, usually by peers and usually without any helpful recontextualization. I mean, on an even field of battle, I would argue Shakespeare has far more content of an uncomfortable nature in his canon than does Lovecraft. The difference being, when Shakespeare is presented, it's usually with copious footnotes and class discussions as we put his work into a historical and, you know, philosophical, sexual, everything context. Lovecraft is, well, Lovecraft sneaks in, hidden at the bottom of a knapsack. My first experience with Lovecraft was more like my first brushes with pornography than with great works of literature. A friend had a book of stories along on a school trip and finished it. I, being ever curious, swapped for my Stephen King collection of shorts, and we were both settled for reading material. As the book was handed to me, it came with a warning. Some of this stuff is... well, it's really fucked up. Naturally, that just made me more interested, as teenagers are often wont to seek out in art the extremis of experience they feel their parents are denying them in life. What I found was terrifying. In its way, the dry and overwrought prose gave the whole thing a sense of solidity. Lovecraft feels so real because his prose is so antiquated. It was even for his day. Small wonder that I would connect with the work of a bookish weirdo who was essentially homeschooled for much of his childhood. He also began choosing his own reading material from a very young age, another thing we share. Good thing we don't share the racism thing. Anyway. 
Similar to the experience of reading House of Leaves, with its copious footnotes and digressions, the multiple trips to the dictionary during a close reading of Lovecraft fills one with a sense, not of fantasy, but of stark reality. Many of his stories concern researchers. They are filled with passages of seekers of truth poring over the contents of dusty archives, antique shops, and museums. This forced research almost turns the reading into a kind of alternate reality game, something akin to LARPing, and probably has a good deal to do with the staying power of Lovecraft over the years. So what am I getting at? Well, I guess I'm trying to explain that we spend our first time with Lovecraft often alone, and secretively, and because of that our guard is a bit down and we just kind of let it in. It's only later as we grow up that we start to realize that Houses of Parliament Lovecraft... What? H Howard Phillips? No, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Houses of Parliament, like, like the sauce. <clears throat> we start to realize that HPL had some damned curious ideas about the world around him. Better folks than I have taken Harry Potter Lovecraft to task for his coded racism, sexism, and homophobia, and I will not do so here. Suffice to say that that stuff is out there. Please Google it. It's fascinating and will aid you in reading the text. As a short aside, though, here's something I want to point out in Hartlepool Railway Station's work that I have always found laughably baffling. He writes often of the ancient and antiquated nature of certain towns and villages on the east coast of the United States, as though these settlements are so old as to be frightening by their very antediluvian nature. The only problem? Most of what he's writing about is less than 300 years old. I'm sure many of my listeners in Europe will find the very idea of someone thinking a 250, 300-year-old building old being creepy as just laughable. And it's not as though he's going for some kind of, before it was a town of white people, it was a native village from before the dawn of civilization, or something like that. Nope, just, well... We've been here for scores of years, so ancient evil must lurk here. Where was I? Oh, yeah. HPL is racist on the HDL. I find the particular ire we direct at Howard Propulsion Laboratory to be strange. I mean, there are many beloved authors that have some pretty damning passages in their books that don't get half the attention that HP does for the same kind of stuff. I wonder if it's the pulpy nature of his original works, and also their one-step-above-fanfiction origins. Reading up on biographical information on Houston Public Library is fascinating, as he in many ways presages a certain kind of writing nerd that we see today. Like a denizen of Archive of Our Own or Fanfiction.net, HPL spent most of his time at home refraining from interacting with the outside world. He loved to read books and follow the latest news from around the world on, in newspapers and so on, but refrained from engaging with it. He was no pariah, though, as he maintained a lively correspondence with a wide circle of other writers of fantastic fiction in the burgeoning horror genre, including Robert E. Howard. Oh man, can you imagine a Conan-Cthulhu crossover? It would be like Brock Samson versus Godzilla. I'd give the fight even odds. 
They would send each other stories back and forth to read and comment on and often shared characters, settings, and concepts. There's a distinct sense of camaraderie in much of the correspondence. Haldia Petrochemicals Limited thought very little of his own abilities as a writer, and it was often one of this circle of friends who would submit his work to a pulp magazine publisher on his behalf. I confess, I'm on a bit of a personal hobby horse here, describing this long-distance writing circle and comparing it to the internet, but the conclusions can be drawn. It may be reductionistic, but I firmly believe that people are people wherever or whenever you go. I think one Australopithecus probably turned to another Australopithecus and said something like, this grub gathering ceremony isn't nearly as exciting as last year's. Or a Neanderthal turned to another one and said, dude, I think your handprints are a bit derivative of mine. I just like finding old-timey activities or behaviors that echo ones we practice or recognize in ourselves. We have a wealth of collected letters from HP's circle that really shows us the processes and thoughts behind much of their work, giving us a three-dimensional picture of these creators and their personal feelings about their work, which brings us full circle back to those uncomfortable bits because, oh boy howdy, they are there. As my good friend JD pointed out to me, the stories aren't really the problem, strangely. It's the letters where the guy is just... Fuck. But here's the thing, and I think it's another reason human placental lactogen is someone we still care about. I think it's fun to pick apart his work. I feel like it's actually meant for that. It was being written in an environment where the first readers would be critical fans, but also friends. So why not go visit your old pal HPL and see if there's anything worthwhile in there? If you're looking for a good way to do that with some of the proper contextualization that I was talking about looking for earlier, I highly recommend H.P. Lovecraft, The Classic Horror Stories, from Oxford World's Classics. It's got loads of the same kind of footnotes that a good edition of Shakespeare usually has. The bits that help you understand the cultural moment and context when they were being created. I can't help but occasionally feel a bit of kinship for my old pal H.P.L. Sure. I've matured, and he's kind of morphed into that one uncle we hope won't show up for the holidays, but he's been with me for a long time, and for better or for worse, he's my weird uncle. Why do I feel a kinship with him? Because I too makes my stuff for people. I mean, I'm writing this right now to put it on a podcast and then just chuck it out into the World Wide Web. Maybe a friend will hear it and like it. Maybe it will get popular. Maybe someone will send me a letter about it, or maybe, maybe, it will just be consumed without emotion by a heedless terror of the cyclopean vastness never seen again. I need more coffee. Widow McFarlane I was the Widow McFarlane, weaver of carpets for all the village, and I pity you still at the loom of life. You who are singing to the shuttle and lovingly watching the work of your hands, if you reach the day of hate of terrible truth. For the cloth of life is woven, you know, to a pattern hidden under the loom, a pattern you will never see. And you weave high-hearted singing, singing, you guard the threads of love and friendship for noble figures in gold and purple, and long after other eyes can see, you have woven a moon-white strip of cloth. 
You laugh in your strength for hope or lays it with shapes of love and beauty. The loom stops short. The pattern's out. You're alone in the room. You have woven a shroud. And hate of it lays you in it. Hokey fright. Have you heard about Paranorman, The Frighteners, and Mandy? I thought that since it was Halloween this week, you might be in the mood for something spooky, and that I should recommend a haunting tale. That being said, I know that tastes in horror can vary somewhat. Some folks like things really, really hardcore, and some folks just want something a little bit spoopy. In light of that, I've chosen three spooky films that I love, and I'm going to hokey fright all three of them in kind of a speed round, and hopefully there will be something appropriate for you. Paranorman. This charming little stop-motion animated film was like a studio's follow-up to Coraline, although far less lauded and it seems like less people know about it, it is no less charming nonetheless. The setup is basic enough. A young boy can see and talk to ghosts, and then a scarier ghost than usual shows up. While this is simple enough for even the youngest of children to follow, there is enough to delight adults as well. I know it's pretty popular to make 80s throwback spooky adventures for all ages right now, just look at Stranger Things or those itzes, but this was doing it all the way back in 2012. If you're looking for something lovely for the whole family that won't insult the big kids, this one's delightful. The Frighteners. Speaking of lads who see ghosts, this is one of my favorite films in that genre. This flick has got so much to love, from kooky side characters to pre-CGI-obsessed Peter Jackson's trademark wackadoodle sensibilities. Michael J. Fox, yes, that Michael J. Fox, oh, what a fox, plays a con man with a tragic past who can see ghosts. That's a pretty simple setup. The ghosts haunt the bejeebers out of the house, and then MJF gets called in to bust them. Thing is, there is Bud's. In the predictable way of such things, he winds up getting asked to deal with a ghost he doesn't know, and things turn even more pear-shaped when it turns out that there's a dark connection to his own past. To tell you anything more would spoil what is a delightful roller coaster of a film. Special shout-out to one of my favorite comic actors of all time, Chi McBride as quite possibly my favorite ghost of all time, Cyrus. If Chi McBride as a ghost doesn't sell you on this flick, I feel bad for you, son. This is technically rated R, but I think it's for a couple of swears. It's pretty much a PG-13 film, a la The Mummy or uh, The Mummy Returns. Mandy. Oh boy, howdy. This film is pretty much a Friday the 13th movie from the perspective of Jason, and Nicolas Cage plays Jason. Honestly, you should just turn off the podcast right now and go watch it, but if you're driving in the car or something and you don't have you know, you can't go do that, then I'll tell you a little bit more about the film. I saw this film with my friend JD back at the beginning of September, and I'm still processing it. It's not uncommon to hear things about films like, they will blow you away, or they will eat your eyeballs, or something, but this film does. Nicolas Cage plays a lumberjack whose wife is murdered by a weird cult. He then forges an axe and goes looking for revenge. I'll be honest, I often watch Nicolas Cage films for that singular moment where he flips the cuss out and loses his ding-dang mind, becoming something unhinged and demonic. And this film totally delivers. The Cage Freakout, TM, is presented in a single take, and it's glorious. 
Plus, the film gives it almost 90 minutes of buildup before we finally see Papa C lose his chill. Also, the movie has unkillable demon bikers, so yeah, it rules. This has some hardcore gore and the most intense stuff to hit my eyeballs since I first discovered Felix Colgrave's animation, so, you know, lock the kids in the closet with an iPad full of over-the-garden wall. It's what you're going to need for yourself after you watch Mandy. Pauline Barrett. Almost the shell of a woman after the surgeon's knife, and almost a year to creep back into strength, till the dawn of our wedding decennial found my seeming self again. We walked the forest together, by a path of soundless moss and turf, but I could not look in your eyes, and you could not look in my eyes, for such sorrow was ours, the beginning of grey in your hair, and I but a shell of myself. And what did we talk of? Sky and water, anything, most to hide our thoughts, and then your gift of wild roses set on the table to grace our dinner. Poor heart, how bravely you struggled to imagine and live a remembered rapture. Then my spirit drooped as the night came on, and you left me alone in my room for a while, as you did when I was a bride, poor heart. And I looked in the mirror and something said, One should be all dead when one is half dead, nor ever mock life, nor ever cheat love. And I did it, looking there in the mirror. Dear, have you ever understood? Mailbag. If you've got some weird taxidermy or a question about the podcast or a piece of writing you want me to read aloud on the air, go ahead and put that in an envelope and send it to Strangely, 1000 Harris Avenue, number 21, Bellingham, Washington, 98225. I look forward to hearing from you. The Unknown. Ye aspiring ones, listen to the story of the unknown who lies here with no stone to mark the place. As a boy, reckless and wanton, wandering with gun in hand through the forest near the mansion of Aaron Hatfield, I shot a hawk perched on the top of a dead tree. He fell with a guttural cry, at my feet his wing broken. Then I put him in a cage where he lived many days, calling angrily at me when I offered him food. Daily I search the realms of Hades for the soul of the hawk, that I may offer him the friendship of one whom life wounded and caged. Well, that about does it for this week's very special Halloween episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. I hope you folks have enjoyed it. I had so much fun putting this together. In fact, I was having so much fun putting this together that there is actually a super deluxe DualShock double vibration triple platinum Patreon subscriber only version of this particular episode. I ended up covering a song that... I couldn't put on the podcast because it's a it's a song you know copyright and da, da, da. but if you go over to Patreon there is a version on of this episode on Patreon with a few bonus features including a, a couple of extra Spoon River poems and a recording of that cover song so head on over to the Patreon that's Patreon p a t r e o n dot com slash strangely and uh, you can hear the deluxe Patreon exclusive edition of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you all in November.
in which I will not be shaving because I never shave. Ha <laughs> ha. Tales done, I've got to run. Perhaps we'll meet again. Until that time, may you feel fine. Please come back often. All the world is a tapestry, each of us lives within the weave. Tree is but a million strings. Look close and you will perceive. Look close and you will perceive. Strangely and Friends, the podcast is a Herringbone Society production.